can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12 this morning. As we look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 to 50, it's the last section of this um, chapter. And uh, I want to read it for us just so it's familiar with this, and then we'll have a little introduction and then uh, go on into the text. It says in verse 43 of Matthew 12, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes to the dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And then he comes and he finds it empty, swept and put in order. Then he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So it shall be with this wicked generation. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside speaking to, uh, seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. When I ask you, forgive me this morning, I picked something up on the plane going back and had dealt with it in Florida the whole time and I'm just getting over it. So I'm going to be drinking a lot of water this morning. But as we look at this text in Matthew chapter 12, one thing we see very common, I think, today in our society, and you hear it on the news, you hear it in churches, you hear it all over the place, is that we have to get back to our roots as a nation. We have to get back to the morality that made this nation great and, and all the, the characteristics and, and the behaviors uh, that, that were ethical. And you hear it on talk shows, you hear it on news programs, on the radio, you hear it in churches and it seems like there's a fresh awareness that we have to return to our roots, to standard behavior within our society, because everything is just going amok very quickly. But it's not just political. It's also even within churches today. There's a lot of churches that preach a uh, kind of a new morality, uh, calling back to moral, ethic behavior. And even within the church that I grew up in, the Roman Catholic Church, we always saw that they stood up for moral behavior with dealing with abortion, dealing with uh, divorce. They were always on the side of the right and doing the right thing. Even cults, groups like Mormons and whatever, they're, they're looked at as a moral group, as an ethical group in their behavior. And for years, I think, in our country... Uh, a lot of Christianity on the liberal social agenda has really made it kind of their, um, their call to develop a system of ethics that we live by. And they throw God there in the mix somewhere. I can remember back when I was going to Christian Heritage College, Dr. LaHaye's school down there in El Cajon, I remember on Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we'd have picketers out in front of the college campus. People, because he was involved 
with moral majority. He was, his wife was involved with Concerned Women for America. And we saw all these uh, kind of organizations that were political, but they were conservative, but they were political. They began to rise up. And uh, they wanted to bring America back to a position of morality. And the way they sought to do that was through the political agenda. And unfortunately, not that we shouldn't be concerned with politics, not that we shouldn't do our right as a, system, a citizen and go and vote and, and vote for those leaders who uphold the Bible. And, and hopefully, if you can find one or two, you can vote for them that are pro-life. Um, that's all good. But a lot of those organizations spend more time trying to influence judges and legislators and other national leaders than even sharing Christ. And that's where it goes awry. They spend more time attacking the national drift away from morality than calling people to Christ. And that's, we see that even today. Now, is there anything wrong with a call to morality? No. Is there anything wrong with upholding good values and ethics? No. As long as they line up with what the Bible says, as it revealed in the Word of God. That's what we're called to do. That's why we're called the salt of the earth. Can you imagine what it was like if there was no church here? If there was no Holy Spirit? It would be a very, very bad place. But I want to say this morning that morality in and of itself, ethics in and of themselves really by itself is more dangerous and more, you might say, damning than immorality. Now, you may hear that and go, what did he just say, that morality is more dangerous than immorality? Yeah, that's what I said. That's basically what our Lord is teaching here in this passage that we're going to look at. He's teaching about the danger of morality, the danger of ethics, the danger of religion, of just reforming oneself, cleaning up one's behavior, cleaning up your life, turning over a new leaf, changing from evil habits to, quote, good habits. And so this morning, I want to look at religion versus relationship, and that's what we see here in our text. Remember, just to give you a little background here, the Pharisees were the classic Moralists. There was probably no other group in existence at the time of our Lord that was more committed to ethics and standards and principles of life than the Pharisees. They lived by a very complex and demanding code of ethics and rules and laws, and we, we've seen that as we work through Matthew, how they burdened their own people with all this stuff that they had to follow. They had laws for everything. And their life was totally and utterly just a mass of legislation and morality. That's what they looked at. They would be the moral majority of their time, you might say. They were calling people to ethical behavior based on the law and based on their understanding of their own traditions. But in the process of that pursuit they came to a point where they were, in fact, rejecting the Son of God himself who was in the midst of them in human form. So while they were entrenched in their morality, they were still damned to hell because they rejected the only one that can save you from hell, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
it appears that as they committed themselves to morality, the more they did that, the more they kind of set in concrete their own judgment. They cleaned up their lives outwardly, the Bible tells us. But they didn't do it inwardly. So they looked at themselves and they convinced themselves that they were moral people, that they were righteous people, that they were good people. And as a result, when someone came along preaching the message of sin, like John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, they weren't interested in listening. They just tuned it out. They said, well, that's for somebody else. That's not for me. I'm already righteous. So they had this illusion of their own self-righteousness. And they became unreachable, the Bible says. Now, we've seen that as we've looked through Matthew, these various chapters, that Jesus had little trouble reaching out to the harlots, to the prostitutes, to the tax collectors, to the extortionists, to the criminals, to the robbers, to the outcasts, to the sinners of society. He had little problem reaching out to them. But he had almost an impossible task before him when he tried to reach out to those who were religious, those who were self-righteous, the moral people who were under the illusion and self-deception that they were already righteous because of their own goodness. Everything was okay between them and God because they looked at themselves. They recognized no sin, so therefore they needed no Savior. See, that's the danger of morality, is that you can actually clean your life up pretty good. But unless you commit yourself to the Savior, you're just as damned as the most immoral person. Turn over to Matthew chapter 23 just quickly. I just want to set a groundwork. Matthew 23, just look at verse uh, 25. Matthew 23, verse 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He calls them serpents in verse 33, uh, brood of vipers. How will you escape condemnation of hell? So he points out to them very clearly that even though they look good on the outside, there's something inside that's stinking. I remember one time I took a bag of trash, and I think our, our trash bin at the, at the house was full or something, and I threw it in the back of my little car, and I was going to dump it at the church over here in the trash bin. And uh, I remember having that trash in there, 
when I went to the coffee shop thinking, I've got to remember to take that trash out of the trunk. Well, I didn't remember. And I don't know if it was crab or something. It was something bad. And I remember for days afterwards thinking, man, what is that smell? I look under the seat. Just never looked in the trunk for whatever reason. And, you know, you got those fold-down seats, and the smell just came right through. I couldn't figure out what it was. I mean, by the time I got it, got it I mean, the plastic bag itself was almost, <laughs> you know, gone. And, uh, and, and that's what the picture he's painting here. You know, on the outside, everything looked good, but there was some stench. There was something wrong. And that's what he wanted them to understand. The sad fact is that they didn't recognize that because they were under the illusion of morality, of self-righteousness. They were very committed to the code of ethics. We looked at at chapters 11 and 12. And we've seen that where they've come to a point of just outward rejection of Christ. They rejected their Messiah. In the first 10 chapters of Matthew, he was presented as the Messiah. And in two chapters, they basically dismantled that and they rejected him. Not only did they reject him, but they even committed what the Bible says is an unforgivable sin In other words, they accused Jesus of being indwelt by Satan himself, doing the work of Satan himself. They claimed that Christ was filled with Satan's power. That's how far gone they were. And the Bible says that they were doomed basically forever. Well, in verse 43, we see the Lord's kind of response to this kind of rejection. Remember last time, a couple weeks ago, we looked at verses 38 up to 42, and we saw that he was going to level judgment on these Christ rejectors. Remember that? And they were so bad that even the Gentiles, the Bible says, was going to condemn them on the day of judgment. Because the Gentiles had less information, but they still believed. And they used the examples of the Ninevites, and they used the, he used the example of the Queen of Sheba, <coughs> who listened to Solomon. And Jesus says, you're going to be condemned by them because you have a greater, you have someone greater than Jonah himself here, and someone greater than Solomon in your midst, the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet you've rejected him. So that's the message of condemnation that he levels out on them. And so the purpose of this section here this morning in verses 43 to 50, it's to warn them not to listen to this religion of the Pharisees of the moral people of his day. Don't listen to them, but come to Christ. That's what the basic purpose of this text of Scripture is, because there's a big difference. And you can break it down in two sections. The first section deals with religion. The second section deals with uh, relationship. And, you know, if there's one thing that's, that's clear to us throughout the Bible is that God puts a heavy... Uh, emphasis on having a relationship with him. It's not just about doing things, but it's about having a relationship with him. And so, to illustrate that, there's, there's even a parable in Luke 18.10. You can turn over there if you like. Luke 18.10. That shows us these two individuals, the religious person and the person who has a uh, relationship talks about two men who went to the temple to pray, and we've read this before, so we'll just go over it quickly. One was a Pharisee, a religionist, a moralist. The other was a tax collector, someone who was immoral. That's the worst possible person you could be, really, 
in that day as a tax collector because they were taking money from the, their own people and giving it to Rome. And it says in verse uh, 9 that he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Notice it says he didn't pray to God because God wasn't listening to his prayer. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men, these extortionists, these unjust adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. See, that's the typical prayer of someone who is self-righteous, who is someone just filled up with themselves, someone who thinks that they're moral. I thank God that I don't do it like those people over there, the neighbor across the street or the neighbor down the street. I'm not as bad as them. I have never murdered anybody, never robbed a bank, never committed adultery. And on the positive side, I fast and I tithe. I do all these good things, so I'm sure that God looks at that as good. And these kind of people just check in with God to make sure that, you know, uh, he knows that they're just as holy as he is. That's a moralist. That's somebody who's a religionist. That's somebody who's trusting in themselves for their own salvation. What goes on in verse 13, it says, A tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. In other words, he was so humiliated by his sin. But it says he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, speaking of the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbled himself, humbles himself will be exalted. So it's important to understand that morality in and of itself is really a damning thing. It's not a good thing. Self-righteousness in and of itself is a damning thing. It'll send you to hell just like the worst sin you can think of. In a lot of ways, you'd be better off to be immoral and face the reality of your immorality and your need of a Savior than to be a moral person. Because if you're just a moral person, you're living under this illusion that you and God are okay when in fact you're not. And that's the message of this passage. Well, let's look at verse 43, and we'll just kind of weave our way through uh, Matthew 12. Here are the closing verses. And this is kind of a, in a way, a little parable that he, he shares here. Uh, with us. Now, he's confronting these Pharisees who are just filled with themselves, think themselves just to be very righteous and everything, and, uh, but they don't have Jesus Christ in their life. They're missing the main thing. So it says there in verse 43 that when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, He goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. So the main character of this parable that Jesus is sharing with us is what? It's a demon. It's an unclean spirit. A lot of people don't like to talk about this kind of stuff. I don't really like to talk about this kind of stuff. But we got to deal with it because it's here. There's a lot of churches you can go into and they're talking about demons every Sunday. I mean, I think they talk about demons more than they talk about Christ sometimes. Um, I remember when I was a youth pastor, I went to a seminar one time on, on how to, uh, it was a spiritual warfare seminar. And they talked about all this stuff, and it was just wacky stuff. How to bind Satan, and how to bind a demon, and how to cast out a demon. And all. 
And they gave you a manual, and you know, you got to plead the blood of Christ, and all this kind of crazy stuff. Now, I, I say that only to say that this is very real. This is not a fairy tale. Uh, there is a spiritual world in which we live in. And this morning, Jesus kind of just pulls back this dark curtain a little bit for us to get a glimpse of a little bit of the nature and the characteristics of these vile things called demons. And we're not going to go into an in-depth study on demonology this morning, but we're going to bring out a couple points that we can see here in the text. So the first phrase there, unclean spirit, it's used a lot of times in the New Testament. And it always refers to, obviously, a demon. A demon is a fallen angel. Remember, Lucifer himself was once an angel. And he turned on God. He, he basically lifted himself up. He did what that verse that we just read said. He exalted himself. And as a result, he tried to take over God's rule. And therefore, God threw him out of heaven along with a third of the angels. Well, they became demons. That's what a demon is. It's a fallen angel. It's those who are against everything that God is for and believes in. They're vile, wretched, wicked, spiritual creatures. And it kind of emphasizes there, that word unclean emphasizes, kind of the emphasis is on immorality. So it's this, this filthy, immoral, vile creature, spiritual creature. But it's interesting because we see here that not only does he talk about this, this spirit, but it also says, and these are vile creatures, but there, there must be a degree of their filthiness. Because he says there in verse 45 that he goes and he takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. So there's a degree to the, the, the vileness or the wretchedness or the wickedness of these demons. They're not all the same. Some are really, really, really bad and some are just really, really bad. And some are really bad. Okay, so, I mean, but they're all bad. It's not something you want to mess around with. That's why the Bible forbids us to delve into the thing of Ouija boards or horoscopes or any of that stuff. Some people just do that stuff for fun. Well, it's not fun. It's a very real door that can lead you into occultic behavior. And the Bible says that we shouldn't have any part of that kind of stuff. So this, this idea basically shows us that demons are vile creatures, they're spiritual creatures, they're wicked beings, and they go from vile to more vile and the worst and, and, and on. There's a degree to their, their wickedness. Well, this one says that it's dwelling in a man. It says when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it tells us that demons like to be in human beings. They like to dwell there. They like to set up shop there. I've never, to my knowledge, experienced somebody who was demon-possessed. I walked away from some conversations with people scratching my head saying, man, I wonder if that was just one. But, you know, I've never openly seen that. But it's something that's real and it's something that it exists. And you don't have to look too far, even in our own society, to see this kind of this, this stuff going on. But it says this demon was dwelling in this man, and it says that he went out of the man. We don't know how. We don't know why. We'll get into this a little bit later. But for some reason, he left the man. 
He was setting up shop in this human being, and he left. So the spirit goes out, he leaves, and then it says this, he walks through dry places. And it's, it's, it's kind of like he's restless. He goes out and he goes through the dry places seeking rest, but he finds none. Because he's not in his home. He's not possessing this human, this man in this, in this story that Jesus is telling. Now, we see a lot of times in the Bible where, where Jesus even went out to be tempted of Satan himself. The place where that happened, a lot of archaeologists and Bible scholars say that there's a place called the Devastation. And it's basically limestone, rock, and scorching sun. There's not a whole lot else. And for whatever reason, these demons and Satan seem to dwell in those kind of places. That's not where they want to be. They want to be possessing something, a human being or an animal or, or some living thing. But there was this restlessness with the spirit. And he seeked refreshment, but he couldn't find any, it says. And the reason is, is because I think the way that they rest, the way that they are most relaxed is when they're actually possessing somebody and they can carry out all their vile and wretched plans through a human being. And so the Lord is saying here, in effect, that these demons go in and out of men or women or animals, but they seem to be at home most when they're in them, when they're possessing them. And verse 44 says... That the demon says, then he says, I will return, look at what it says, to my house from which I came. Notice, he says, my house. That's why we believe in demon possession. They literally set up house in human beings. It's a dwelling place. Demons not only function within men and women and human beings, but apparently they can also go into animals and other things. Remember the story where Jesus um, healed the demoniac and sent all the, the, the demons into the herd of swine. They don't like to be wandering around. They want to possess something. And so this demon particularly wanted to go back to the person that he possessed. Look at what it says in verse 44. He says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when he comes, he finds it what? What's it say? Empty. Right? You need to underline that word. Empty. Swept and put in order. See, this is the the key, really, to understanding this whole parable. A lot of people read this, and they're like, what the heck is he talking about? What in the world is this? Where does this you know, fit in here. Why did the demon leave in the first place? Might be a question you ask. Well, maybe this individual in this parable went through some kind of moral reformation. Maybe he found religion. Maybe he changed his behavior. Some way, maybe he cleaned up his act. Maybe he got rid of some of the evil vices in his life. I mean, we do that as human beings. We can do that. There's people that go through Alcoholics Anonymous and, and clean up their whole thing and go dry, and, and they're drug-free and alcohol-free for years. But they're not a Christian. We can help ourselves that way. We can sort of straighten ourselves up on the outside. That's why people like New Year's resolutions. It's that time of the year where, boy, you can start fresh. You know, you make all these resolutions. 
I mean, even prostitutes can stop their prostitution. Drug addicts can stop their, their drug behavior and live a respectable life. Criminals may give up their crimes. So there's a possibility somehow in the heart of man that they have a capacity, sort of, to reform themselves. Maybe because they're responding to the fear of prison. Maybe they're responding to the fear of pressure or responding to the pressure of the people around them who love them. Whatever it is, and even religion can be part of that. This man may have been responding to religious pressure. So he cleaned up his act and the demon left. It may have been that this person in this parable that Jesus is telling was a man who was delivered from demons by Jesus himself. We know through scripture, and we've looked at some, that Jesus went throughout the land and he healed people of various diseases. And it says in various places that he healed all of them. There was no line for Christians and non-Christians. He healed everybody. He cast demons out of everybody. So maybe this individual in the story he's relating to here was one that Jesus cast out himself. But what he's doing, basically, is he's illustrating this external kind of cleansing, a kind of a moral reformation, cleaning up your act. And that's really what went on in the ministry of John the Baptist, if you remember when we, we talked about John the Baptist. John the Baptist came preaching what? Repentance, right? For the kingdom of God is at hand. It says, all Jerusalem and Judea went out to meet him to the Jordan River, and they were confessing their sins, the Bible tells us. They were repenting and being baptized with the baptism of John. They weren't receiving Christ at this point. They were just cleaning up their acts so they could get ready to receive Christ. They were sweeping out the house. They were adorning it with the reformation, the repentance, and getting their lives right with the anticipation that the Messiah is coming. But the unfortunate thing is, is, beloved, when the Messiah came, a great majority of these people never let him in. They rejected him openly. And so they sat there, all cleaned up, all fixed up on the outside, but refusing the entrance of the Messiah into their life. Well, what's the end of that? Well, look at what it says in verse 45. Then he goes, the demon goes and takes with him, what? Seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and they dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. The person who was delivered from a demon at one point, or the demon left for whatever reason, we're not told, but they never filled their life with Christ. They never came to Christ. They never submitted their need to the Lordship of Christ. And that key word, as I pointed out there, is empty. They found it empty. You just clean up your act on the outside, but you never let Christ in. You never receive Christ. You never truly, you may even repent of your sins. You may turn away from your sin and clean yourself up, but you don't turn to Christ. And there's this superficial, external kind of morality and ethical behavior 
that's going on, even in the church today, but there's no place for Christ in the life. There's no room for him. See, many had come to John the Baptist, repented, been baptized. The Pharisees were preaching the gospel of morality without Christ. If you turn over to Acts chapter 19, we'll just see this in a very kind of quick little way. Acts 19. This is the the early part of the development of the church after the church was born. And Paul is coming to Ephesus and he finds some disciples there. And look at what he says to them in verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples there, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so they said to him, We have not so much even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. They didn't have a clue. They never even heard about it. And he said to them in verse 3, Into what then were you baptized? Well, they said, Well, into John's baptism. And then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you see here that here were followers. There were people that, that were looking for the Messiah, that came to the Messiah, says they were kind of believers, but they weren't filled with the Spirit because they were just baptized in John's baptism. And so these were people who were, basically everything was in order, everything was ready to go. But they hadn't truly committed themselves to Christ yet. A couple weeks ago, we had a baptism. When you, when you follow the Lord through the waters of baptism, you're really making a commitment. It doesn't save you, but it's a picture of your commitment to Christ. They believed in Christ, but there was an empty place there. In this case, it was filled with Christ. In other cases, it wasn't. So I think that's what the Lord is trying to, to point out here, that there's a cleaning up of the life, and the demons go out because they can't do what they want to do. And when the, the moral reform takes place because a vile, wretched, evil, unclean spirit might not be at home in that person who's reforming themselves, the demon leaves initially. But if Christ doesn't come in, then what happens? The place stays empty, Matthew tells us. And then you got eight demons. You're even worse than you were before. That emptiness back in Matthew 12 speaks of that vacuum that's created when people get moral, but they don't get Christ. And the reason it's more dangerous than immorality is because it says right here from the lips of our Lord that instead of just one unclean spirit, now you got eight. Think about it. A religious, self-righteous, moral person becomes a victim of Satan in a way Maybe even an immoral person doesn't. And he may even be speaking here in Matthew 12 nationally, speaking of the nation of Israel. There was a time of their time from Egypt and Babylonian captivity. They cleaned up their, their house and they got rid of idolatry, but maybe they were still empty as a nation. 
They didn't come to Christ. When Christ came, they wouldn't let him in. Finally, in the end, the, the Antichrist and all of his hosts will enter the nation in the league and in the, in the Great Tribulation. So whether you see it as this individual or the nation of Israel, whichever, but just cleaning up your act, beloved, just sweeping your house and putting things in order, if you don't have Christ there, you're not going to do yourself any good at all. It's better you just stay immoral. How is it worse to be moral? Because a sinful person who is aware of his sinfulness has more vigilance than a moral person who has no such awareness. Think about that. After you came to Christ, all of a sudden the Spirit begins to make you aware of certain sins in your life. What do you do? You want to listen to the Spirit. You don't want to grieve the Spirit. So you begin to submit your will to God's will. And God begins to clean up your act from the inside out. Because you have the Holy Spirit to do that. That's what happens when someone who is self-righteous and moral... um, they, they, they just kind of lose that fortitude to keep that, that righteousness going because they're just trusting in themselves, trusting in their own reformation. It's like sometimes you hear people dealing with child molesters and pedophiles and all that. Well, they just need to be reformed. No. There, there's no reformation that could ever help those people outside of transformation by the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't care how many classes you put them through or how long they sit in prison. They're going to continue to do what they know to do. Outside of Jesus Christ, there's no hope. Well, here, somehow, in verse 45, it says that they will dwell They will enter and dwell there. That word dwell means to set up house, to be at home. They're comfortable there. It's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 3.17 when Paul prays that Christ may settle down in your hearts by faith. Well, the demons are coming back, and they're coming back with seven more friends, and they're going to settle down in this empty life that doesn't have Christ. And the, the last state is worse than the first. That's why in Matthew 23, 15, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. In other words, you go all over the place trying to convert people to your Pharisaic morality. And he continues in Matthew 23, And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. What's he saying? Just because you're a disciple of somebody who is self-righteous, who's filled with legalism and religion, Usually those people who are disciples are more committed than the, the teacher themselves. You see that in the, in the world of Islam, with Islamic terrorists. Do you ever wonder why Osama bin Laden isn't out there blowing himself up? Why does he have to go and start taking school children and training them how to be suicide bombers and the such? Because they're, they have a passion they, they want to do it. They, they, they look at it as a sacrifice. Well, the, the people that are really driving the whole, the whole ship and running the operation, well, they're never going to do that. It's almost hypocritical. And that's what was happening even with the Pharisees. They were going out and getting disciples to their own moralistic behavior. And what Jesus is pointing out in Matthew 23, man, they're, they're worse off than you. 
Morality makes a person a son of hell. And the more you're subscribed to self-righteous morality, the more you really are committing yourselves to a judgment of hell itself. So the message of the church isn't to create this vacuum without Christ, some moral, we don't try to go out and just win people over morally. We're not just committed to the political cause. Like I said, we should go to the ballot box and we should vote our conscience and vote what lines up with God's word, but that's not it. The only way you're going to reform America, the only way you're going to bring America back to any kind of morality is when you see people come to Christ. Jesus never preached morality. Do you understand that? He never, not once. What did he preach? He preached salvation. He preached repentance from sin. And to be honest with you, I'm not really interested much in an America that's moral without Christ. That's why I've never been a big proponent of prayer in public school. Why would you want to put prayer in public school? They're pagans. You can pray in public school today. Why do you have to have a mandate to pray in public school? It doesn't make any sense. Why do you have to have a national day of prayer to pray? Why do we get all bent out of shape when the government says, well, we're not going to observe this? I mean, I understand why, because it goes against everything we believe. But it has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. You can pray every day. You can say, you know what, I declare every day a national day of prayer. Sometimes we get caught up in the wrong things. In a lot of ways, it's better to be irreligious than religious. You ever try to witness to somebody that's religious, who doesn't have Christ? Tough cookie to crack, because they got all the morality. They go to church every Sunday. They do all this stuff, and they point you to that, and they say, look at me. And somehow you've got to show them that that's not good enough. But you go up to a prostitute on the street or a drug dealer in the gutter or whoever it may be, and you say, hey, you know what? You need Christ. They're not going to argue with you. They know they need it. Immoral people didn't blaspheme Christ. Immoral people didn't cry for Christ's death. You know that? Immoral people didn't plot his execution in the New Testament. The harlots and the thieves and the murderers didn't do that. Who did it? The religious people did it. See, that's the curse of morality. That's the curse of righteous, self-righteous people. They're confident that they are holy in themselves and utterly deceived into believing that Satan has nothing to do with them. They have no vigilance, vigilance or protection. And these demons can just swarm in. They don't even have a clue what's going on. And it says in verse 45, the last state is worse than the first. If you look over at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, it gives an illustration of this. Here we see a picture of some people who even come to Christianity. They listen to Christ's message. They have a head knowledge of it. But somehow they missed it. Look at what it says in verse 20, 2 Peter 2.20, it says, For if after they escape the pollutions of the world through the knowledge 
of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So they had a knowledge of Christ in their head, and because of that knowledge, they escaped the pollution of the world. They cleaned up their act. It says, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Verse 21 says, For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it and turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Then he gives an illustration, a proverb. He says, A dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her own, to wallowing in the mire. I mean, you can do whatever you like to your little dogs. You can shampoo them and curl their hair and put little bows on them and dress them up and do all sorts of nice little things. But you know what? I bet you your dog on occasion licks his own vomit. Why? Because it's a dog. You can take a pig and you can dress the pig up however you like. But you let that pig go Where's it going to go? Right back to the mud. Why? Because it's a pig. See, morality is compared here to a dog or to a pig. Dog that returns to its own vomit. A pig that just goes back and wallows in the muck and the mire. People can escape the pollution of the world on the outside. But there's an intensification of their damnation that awaits them when they're empty on the inside. So the Lord here is warning these people in the multitude who might still be open to hearing. He's saying to them, don't follow the path of these Pharisees. Don't go and lead your moral life. Don't go down the religious road. That's not the way to go. Because he says that's going to be Worse than the beginning. And that's what he says in conclusion there in verse 45. So it shall be with this wicked generation. He had here in mind the very people to whom he spoke. And that's exactly what happened. Terrible terrible judgment befell Jerusalem and Israel. It was destroyed in 70 AD. And even the sad part of that whole thing, even after losing all that they believed in and hoped for, They still wouldn't repent. And their eternal souls are most likely lost in hell forever because they had their own morality. But they left their hearts empty. That takes us from religion to the second word that we want to look at is relationship, starting in verse 46. We'll just go through this quickly. It says, while he was still talking to the multitude, behold, his brothers... And mother, his mother and brothers stood outside, seeking to speak with him. So the Lord finishes this section here, we're going to see, with an incredible invitation. And we know that he's in the house because in verse 1 of chapter 13, it says that he went out of the house. So he went in the house, he's in the house, and he's sharing his teachings. He's sharing this parable, a pretty intense parable, talking about demons and spiritual activity and all this stuff with these people in the house. 
And it says, verse 46, it says, while he was still talking to the multitudes, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. That was Mary and his half-brothers, the sons of Joseph and Mary. And this shows us clearly that Mary had other children other than Jesus Christ. She wasn't a perpetual virgin like the Roman Catholic Church wants us to believe. They have no biblical evidence whatsoever. Matter of fact, Mary herself needed a savior. She, she claims that. But here's his family wanting to speak with him. He's in there teaching. At this point, his brothers probably didn't know him as the Messiah, but they still cared for him. They still loved him. They probably heard certain things about his ministry. They, they probably be, were a little concerned. Maybe this was some kind of an intercessory group that was going to come in and, and do a little uh, intercession on Jesus' behalf and save him from some of his crazy thoughts. Because in Mark chapter 3, verses 21 to 22, it says that the friends of Jesus reported that he had become mentally imbalanced. <laughs> like they thought he was out of his mind. Some of the stuff that he was saying, some of the stuff that he was doing, They thought maybe he'd gone off the deep end. Because they didn't know him as Messiah. They just knew him as Brother Jesus. Lost his mind. He was going too far. People were accusing him of being satanic. They were plotting to kill him. Here his loving family along with the mother comes. And they want to speak with him. Verse 47. Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. I mean, just put yourself in this situation. I mean, say I'm up here preaching and Crystal and the grandkids are standing in the lobby like this. And I see him, and I'm not going to just stop preaching, right? I mean, okay, just relax. I'm going to finish what I'm doing. But then one of you says, hey, excuse me, Steve. Uh, Crystal, your daughter's out in the lobby and she wants to talk to you. I mean, just interrupt the message. That's really what's going on here. That would be a little embarrassing. Well, it wasn't for Jesus. He turned the whole thing around. He made a specific point here to use this as a teaching point. And in verse 48, look at what he does. He answered and he said to the one who told him, your mother and your brothers are outside, they want to talk to you, who is my mother and my brothers? Now at this point, they probably all thought he was nuts. You don't even recognize your own mother, Jesus? They're your brothers? You don't even know who they are? Come on. And he answers his own question in verse 49. And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. What was he doing? He's making a point. He's making a point. The scriptures indicate that Jesus loved his mother, he loved his brothers. At the cross, he entrusted John with the care of his mother. James, one of the brothers of our Lord, uh, became the head of the Jerusalem church. These guys grew into their faith. So he's not being rude to them here. He's not just dissing them. He's not just, you know, I don't have time for you people. He's not doing that at all. But he's making a point, and the point he's trying to make is that this earthly, physical relationship that he has with his mother and his brothers is not an issue with him. That's why he says, who is my mother and my brothers? In other words, who is really related to me is the question he's asking. Who is really my family? Who really has intimacy with me? 
Who really can put demands on me regarding responsibility and fellowship? And that's the question he answers there in verse 49. You want to know who's related to me? Well, here's my spiritual family. This is who I'm related to. And really, that's the only family that really matters. That's a, that's a hard lesson for us as Christians today in our society to learn. You understand that when we come here on a Sunday morning to fellowship as believers, that on a plane of your yearly family reunion with your siblings, this is more important, this is more dynamic, you should have more passion for our coming together as believers than you should for that physical reunion with your own brothers and sisters. We, we can't even relate to that. But that's what he's saying. He's saying relationship to me is a spiritual issue. It's not just a physical issue. These who believe in me are related to me. That's why it's so important that we fellowship together. That's why we come together on a Sunday. That's why we come together on a Wednesday night in the growth group or or Friday night. We think that that's important. We know it's important. We're commanded to do it in Scripture. So if we're not doing it, we're being disobedient to what God has commanded us to do. Sometimes we think, well, we don't need that. You know, once a week is good enough for me. I'll just coast the rest, listen to KFAX, and read my Bible. No, there's something about being together with believers that's very important. And he says, you need to know the people who believe in me are related to me. In verse 50, he basically just simplifies it. The whole statement closes out the chapter. And he says, for whoever... You want to know who can be related to me? Look at what he says in verse 50. For whoever. (laughs) Isn't that a neat thing? He could have said, well, um, you know, only this group of people. But he doesn't do that. He says, whoever. He throws the gate wide open. Aren't you glad that word is there? That whoever includes you. That whoever includes me. There's no limit. Whoever what? Does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. What Jesus is saying here, just in closing, is to be related to me is not just a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. These people who believe in me, they may not be related to me physically, but they believe in me, and therefore they're spiritually related to me. The natural question that we end with this morning is how do you get that relationship? How do we know we're related to Christ? It tells us there, by doing the will of my Father. Notice he put there, who is in heaven. Because you remember a couple weeks ago, we were, they were asking for a sign in, in uh, Matthew 12, 38. And following, they were, the Pharisees were asking for a sign from where? From heaven. So Jesus said, you want a sign from heaven? Well, those who are related to me are those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Back in Matthew three seventeen tells us that the baptism of Christ, suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Say, well, what's the will of the Father in heaven? I want to be related to Christ. I want to do the will of the Father in heaven. Well, the will of the Father in heaven is that people on earth acknowledge Jesus Christ as his son. That people on earth acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior that he is. What is it that they should do that is the will of the Father in heaven? They should accept Jesus as his son 
repent of their sins and be pleased with him as their Lord and their God. That's what the Bible says. Matthew 17, 5, the father said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then he adds, hear him. What is God's will? God's will is that you recognize his son, that you believe in the son, that you repent of your sins, that you have a faith relationship with the son. Believing that through Jesus Christ and Christ alone, you will have eternal life. Matthew 18, 11, it says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. He's come to do the Father's will. 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2, 4 says, God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's his will. That's his desire. God's will is that people be saved. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen to everybody. Because in Matthew 7, 21, there's that haunting verse. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. See, sometimes we get confused. We think that somehow we can enter the kingdom of God by doing something, by saying something, rather. We think that we can enter the kingdom of God simply by uttering a prayer or or saying this or saying that. Well, the Bible teaches just the opposite. The way you enter the kingdom of God is by doing the will of my Father who is in heaven. And what that is is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting of your sin, putting your faith in him. So we see the contrast between religion and a relationship. I want to ask you this morning, where are you? Are you just in a relationship or in a religion or are you in a relationship with the living God through Christ? Let's close in a word of prayer and ask God's blessing on our day. Father, we thank you (coughs) for your word this morning. Lord, we know that Acts, in the book of Acts chapter 4 verse 12, the apostles put it very simply. They said, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved other than the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that the only way that we can have a relationship with you, Lord, is through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would deliver us from our delusion of our own self-righteousness, our own morality, our own ethical behavior, that you will, as that song said that we sang earlier, make us desperate for you, that we will realize that without you there is no hope, without you there is no salvation without the recognition of sin in our lives, and also just the recognition that we are sinners, that that's our nature, that's who we are. It's not just what we do, but it's who we are. That unless we repent and turn to you, we will not be saved. That we will go the road of the Pharisee, of the religionist, and one day be condemned to an eternal hell. Father, I pray that we would strive after that personal relationship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. And that's available to all here this morning. I pray that you would cry out from your heart. Be merciful to me, a sinner. I want to repent of my sin. I want to put my trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. That's a prayer he will answer. He will transform you, not just reform you. He will make you new from the inside out. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.